Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live from a wet and cold Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's Audio Blugabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figili Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Burundi village attack leaves 26 people dead ahead of referendum. And children face starvation in the DRC's Kasai region. In economics news, unions representing striking South African bus drivers to meet today. And in sports news, South African women's cricket team vowed to whitewash Bangladesh in Bloemfontein. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. The U.S. Embassy in Israel will officially open in Jerusalem after its controversial relocation from Tel Aviv that sparked widespread concern. U.S. President Donald Trump announced the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem and recognize it as the Israeli capital in December. Palestine has protested against the move, saying Trump's decision endangered the future of the peace talks between the two Middle Eastern countries. Palestinians are expected to protest in large numbers near the Gaza border this afternoon as a White House delegation and Israeli officials gather for the inauguration ceremony. Two British nationals and their Congolese driver held hostage in the Democratic Republic of Congo have been released. Robert Jesty and Bethan Davies were abducted along with their driver on Friday in the Virunga National Park. Park Ranger Rachel Baraka was killed during the kidnapping, which took place near the village of Kibati, just north of Goma. The head of the Virunga National Park has announced that tourism has been suspended following the ambush on Friday. The park's director, Emmanuel de Merode. We've suspended tourism and we'll keep it suspended until we're confident that we can assure the security of visitors. That will be a long process and it will hit the park hard, very hard financially, but unfortunately there's no way around that. The World Health Organization says it hopes to be able to deploy an experimental Ebola vaccine as early as this week to deal with an outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's thought 4,000 doses will be sent to the remote northwestern province of Equete. The WHO says 35 suspected cases have been reported in the area to date, more than half of them fatal. The BBC's Anne Bushby reports. The WHO has moved quickly to tackle this outbreak, having been accused of bungling its response to the epidemic in West Africa four years ago, in which more than 11,000 people died. The scale of that tragedy galvanised international efforts to develop a vaccine, one that will now be used in the remote Congolese province of Equateur. First in line to receive it will be nearly 400 people known to have been in contact with confirmed or suspected Ebola cases. Member of the Pan-African Parliament Rules Committee from South Africa, San Tosh Kailan, 
is calling for a forensic audit of the parliament this week. This comes as re-elected President Roger Nkonda Dang faces allegations of corruption and marginalizing staff from other regions. The clerk Vapia Harawa has confirmed to the public broadcaster SBC News that his job is under threat. He too wants to testify in a parliamentary investigation after the president said it was his office that did not prepare the parliament activity report in time for the plenary. Ntakwa Nangatane reports. Santosh Kalyan is the longest-serving member of the Pan-African Parliament from South Africa. As a member of the Rules Committee, she says she was shocked when the president appointed a third vice president whose victory did not meet the required simple majority as the majority of votes were spoiled, and she says the president admits he broke the rules. Kalyan wants a wide-ranging forensic audit to investigate allegations of mismanagement of funds in suspicion, the president used PAP resources to campaign in 31 countries over three months, purporting to do work for the parliament. And finally, at least 10 people have been wounded after an explosion outside the police headquarters in Indonesia's second biggest city of Surabaya. It comes a day after suicide bombers attacked three churches in the city. Video footage shows two people approaching a checkpoint on motorcycles before apparently blowing themselves up. There has been no immediate claim of responsibility after the latest suicide bombing. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Please note these changes to our frequencies. Our listeners in Eastern Central Africa can now catch us on 6145 kHz on the 49 meter band between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. Central African time. And in West Africa, you can now tune in on double one double eight five kilohertz on the 31 meter band that's between... 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock p.m. Central African time. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the African perspective. At least 26 people were killed after armed attackers targeted a village in northwest Burundi amid tensions ahead of a controversial referendum. The group crossed from the Democratic Republic of Congo into Sibitoke province, according to officials. Reports say the attack may have been an attempt to disrupt next week's referendum, which could extend the president's term until 2034. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. In that house, there were a man and his wife with the small child. They were all killed. They then went down there to another house. The man and his wife managed to run away, but their children could not. They were killed. Three children were killed. This happened late on Friday when a group of unknown gunmen invaded a village in the northwestern province of Chibitoke, attacking homes and killing civilians indiscriminately. Men, women, children... All are among persons killed. 
The assailants were reportedly armed with guns and machetes and began their attack on Ruhagarika village around 22 hours, shooting, hacking with machetes or burning a residents alive, torching even homes. Gunshots were heard from around 10.30 p.m. till around midnight. They even killed small babies. In that house, a man was wrapped in his mattress and burned down after being shot for several times. They set houses on fire, as you can see these ones here and over there. Around seven or eight houses were burned down. Speaking at the scene, Security Minister Alengion Bunyoni called the assailants terrorists who are to be combated jointly with the adjacent Democratic Republic of Congo, where they, according to him, retreated after the attack. We would like to condemn as a government those killers who created havoc in this village. They have no more identity than terrorists who run terrorist acts like this one. We all need to understand that this terrorist group that invaded our country from the Democratic Republic of Congo deserves to be vividly combated by all of us together. From the statistics we have, those assailants killed a total of 26 persons, 24 died on the spot while two others died on their wounds as they were receiving treatment at the hospital. Seven others were injured and are receiving treatment at the hospital in Bujumbura. The message from the government of Burundi is that perpetrators would never relax, thinking things are over as they managed to cross the Rusizi River. We are in good relations with our neighboring country, the Democratic Republic of Congo. We have already started consultations in order to jointly track the group. You should understand that the government of Burundi will never sit hands crossed watching the citizens being killed. That terrorist group will be combated as other terrorist groups are combated. On the side of the National Independent Human Rights Commission, the commission deplores uh, this massacre that targeted uh, innocent civilian people in an in, indiscriminate attack uh, in the apparent... Jean-Baptiste Badewanekeza, the chairperson of the commission, urges the government of Burundi to identify perpetrators and their accomplices so as to bring them to justice. He recommends security and defense forces to take appropriate security measures to prevent and anticipate on such attacks and give a quick response in case they happen. For him, there might have been a failure in security strategies that should involve a set of defined instruments. He asks for their investigations. We know that we have a set of instruments to ensure security for the population of this country from the, all the laws, uh, strategies including the national uh, security strategy as well as all the efforts that have made towards for example reforming the security sector integrating the security institutions and also strengthening their capabilities as well as the new approach of creating the four-level approach to defense and security in this country. Our preliminary view is that those instruments were not adequately used in order to protect the population in that particular uh, area. Uh, we are still investigating in order to understand why uh, and also who should have done what. We are, we are still uh, investigating in order to figure out all those uh, elements before we could make an opinion on who should be held responsible. But at the same time, we are of the strong view that uh, evidently the, uh, we cannot state 
uh, that the local authorities uh, could, we think, obviously done better in order to protect the population. Uh, we cannot say more than that, uh, except that we are going to continue to investigate uh, so that if there was any objectively, say, identifiable failure in the use of the available instruments, whoever is, is responsible could be called into question. The attack occurred amid a campaign for the upcoming controversial referendum on the new constitution due to take place on May 17th. The chairperson of the National Independent Human Rights Commission urges all political stakeholders not to manipulate the criminal act for political interest and to abstain from any speech likely to facilitate or lead to such barbaric crimes. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. About 700,000 children under five are suffering from acute malnutrition in the Kasai region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. This according to a report by the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, released last week. The agency warns that unless urgent action was taken to strengthen the humanitarian response, the number of child deaths in the country could skyrocket. UNICEF spokesperson Christophe Bouliarak. Our report is on uh, one region, the region of Kasai, in the center of DRC, where some uh, very, very uh, terrible violences uh, occurred last year. And today, the good news is that the violence has decreased. And what are we seeing? We, We just see some families who had to flee to the bush and to stay with their children for months without access to safe water, without proper food. And now these people are coming back to their communities. And we see that children are terribly malnourished. We estimate 770,000 children are acutely malnourished, and including 400,000 children severely acutely malnourished. A child who severely acute malnourished is a child that can die at any time if he gets an infection, if he gets some fever. I was in Kasai a few weeks ago, and I have visited several hospitals, and I, I really saw lots of malnourished children dying from complications. And our point is now children are not only at risk of dying, they are dying of malnutrition, and we really need to increase our response immediately. Unfortunately, we don't have enough attention, we don't have enough money to do that, and it's very important that we uh, provide these malnourished children with the the ready-to-use therapeutic food, the medicine they need urgently because otherwise it will be too late. Christopher, that was a very detailed response. Thank you so much. Just one last question. You mentioned that you were in Kasai yourself very recently and you saw acutely malnourished children. And thank you for explaining just how serious it is when a child is acutely malnourished. Um, It's just a reaction from the communities who have now returned to find that they're basically returning to nothing. What are some of the stories that you heard from them and what's their coping mechanism as they await some sort of assistance? You are really pointing out a very important point. Kasai is a region of DRC, of DR Congo, which was, let's say, a quiet region, a stable region years ago. And actually, the children, the population has never experienced terrible uh, high level of violence as they just did last year and they have no coping mechanism and what you hear there from the doctors what you hear from the nurses is that the malnutrition of children has reached such an unusual level for them I have seen children in, in very 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 bad situation 
I didn't know that it was possible to have children malnourished like that in the DR Congo, which is a country of Africa where, you know, the nature is, let's say, generous. It's not like other parts of Africa where it's, very, it's much difficult. But because of the chronic malnutrition, because of the violence, these children became severely malnourished and because of the violence, they could not harvest. They failed three harvests and today they just don't have enough to eat and they are in a bad uh, nutrition situation and they need urgent help and that's the point of our call and that's what you hear from people there on the ground. What they are going through now, what children are going through in Kasai is very unusual and there is an urgent need to provide them with what they need now and not in a few years because or in a few months because that will be too late. That's Christoph Bullyarak, spokesperson for the United Nations Children's Fund, on the line from Geneva in Switzerland, speaking to Jane Rabotata. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congo. For the people of South Africa, And the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and abortion. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholisasa Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the tree of life. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at Rise Shine Africa. You can email us at info at channelafrica.org or send a WhatsApp message on 277-6300-3327. Channel Africa from an African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Let's go back in time to today in 1997. While speaking before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for a second time, former South African President F.W. de Klerk apologized for apartheid. De Klerk repeated his assertion that murder and torture had never been part of government policy. That's today in history in the year 1997. The government of Tanzania has called on the people to remain vigilant as reports of 
An Ebola outbreak emerged last week in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Ministry of Health says government has already taken action, including enforcing screening at the ports of entry to ensure that no infected persons are allowed into the country. Channel Africa's Gabriel Zakaria has more. Tanzania has never registered any case of Ebola in history. The deputy minister insisted that people must bear in mind that Tanzania was not immune to a possible Ebola outbreak, despite the fact that the latest cases of disease have been reported far away in the Diara Congo. We are aware of that uh, uh, in the neighboring country of uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, there has been some reported uh, cases and deaths that are attributed to due to Ebola. But we in Tanzania, we have not... Uh, um, discovered any case to that effect, and the government is taking uh, the, 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 the alerts uh, from the DRC very seriously. We have stepped up surveillance in the um, bordering region, but also um, we've uh, embarked on aggressive uh, public awareness campaign to make sure that people are aware of signs and symptoms of Ebola. A World Health Organization WHO statement produced last week confirmed that the Diara Congo outbreak has occurred in a very remote and deforested village after health officials reported two confirmed cases of Ebola in Bikoro in the country's northwest Equator province. According to Tanzania's Deputy Minister of Health, Mr. Ndugulile, the government is now watching closely as reports of the outbreak continue to unfold and all gears and other preparatory facilities are already in place countrywide. So what we are currently doing is make sure that uh, we uh, we've, we've put people at, at these uh, bordering uh, uh, border stops and uh, we have scanners, we have scanners, uh, we have uh, intensified surveillance, we have made available emergency uh, isolation centers. We have uh, procured uh, uh, protective gears. So all in all, uh, I must say that uh, our, our, our surveillance system is, is very robust. And uh, let me assure that uh, the Tanzanian community that uh, Tanzania is safe from, the, from, from, the, from Ebola. Ebola is fatal in about 90% of cases and is easily spread between humans through direct contact. The virus can be spread to others through direct contact with the blood or body fluids from a person who is sick with or has died from Ebola or when touching objects smeared with the blood or body fluids of a sick person. Tanzanians are admitting the disease is very strange to them and the government should pose education awareness to the public. In Tanzania, I think we have never been uh, in a position uh, with Ebola. And a lot of people are not aware with this disease. It's one of the deadly diseases, as we know. So education should be one of the priorities to be given to all uh, Tanzanian citizens. And uh, the, as you said, the government has posed the, uh, just an alarm to what is going to happen if uh, Ebola is uh, attacking the community. So one of the best things is to take a precaution. Due to um, DRC being affected, uh, recently, we just hear in the news that there's a ball in DRC. Probably Kenya will be more affected and Tanzania also. But I don't know. I don't think that people are more aware maybe of how it's transmitted, how people get Ebola, how you can prevent yourself from getting Ebola. So m- most of the people, I don't think they are really aware 
of the disease. But probably more information is needed to be provided to the people. You'll find that most of people live in most scattered areas. And that is why we cannot avoid uh, contacts from congestion areas. So that this is a most uh, problem uh, regarding the precautions about him from contacting the disease. More effort should be taken, maybe uh, from ourselves and the government. In 2005, Tanzania signed a legally binding international health regulations, IHR, which directs countries around the world to deal with global health emergencies such as Ebola that endanger people's lives and put international traffic as well as trade at risk. Tanzania is producing the information to alert the public against the endangered Ebola virus. Dr. Ndugulile again. There is no treatment for Ebola. That's, that must, uh, must say uh, categorically. Uh, Ebola is not a treatable disease. You can only manage symptoms, but it's not, you cannot treat Ebola. But as, as I said, there's no uh, need to, to raise alarm in Tanzania. Tanzania borders are very safe. We have no reported cases. The world's West Ebola outbreak occurred in West Africa in 2013, killing more than 11,300 people and infecting an estimated of 28,600 as it swept through Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dodoma, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. The United Nations Secretary-General has expressed his full support for the head of UNAIDS despite the reopening of an investigation into claims of sexual assault at the global agency combating the spread of HIV. Civil society groups and individuals across Africa have called for Michel Sedibe's ousting after claims he was involved in a cover-up regarding sexual assault allegations against his deputy at the organization. An internal inquiry recently cleared the former deputy executive director Louise Lores, but claims that the internal investigation was flawed prompted the UN's Office of Internal Oversight Services to reopen it, showing Bryce Peace reports. He's the ebullient executive director of UNAIDS, and Michelle Sidibe has been at the helm of the global agency since his appointment in 2008. But his handling of sexual harassment claims against his former deputy has led to a chorus calling for him to resign or be fired, a question put to the Secretary-General spokesperson Stefan Dujeric earlier this week. Civil society can and should express themselves uh, freely in whatever positions they want to, uh, whatever they want to do. It, like, I'm sure there are people who are, I mean, we've seen people calling for uh, civil society activists on different sides of, uh, of this issue concerning Mr. Bay. What the Secretary General feels is that Michel Bay has done a, a very good job at, at UNAIDS, especially, in fact, on issues of, uh, of gender, and, uh, and he fully supports him. An internal 14-month investigation cleared Lorez, who has since stepped down from UNAIDS, finding no evidence to corroborate claims by employee Martina Brostrom that Lorez sexually harassed her, including trying to forcibly kiss and grope her in the elevator of a hotel in Thailand during a UN conference there in 2015. Bostrom said it took her a year and a half to formally report the incident over fears she might be unfairly targeted and face retaliation. Two other women have made similar claims against Lorez. I asked the Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesperson, Farhan Haq, why his boss has decided to express his full support for Sidibe 
despite the ongoing investigation. We have taken the decision uh, to reopen the investigation. As you know, the Office of Internal Oversight Services is now looking into the matter. Uh, obviously, we would uh, we'll go by whatever their conclusions are once they have gone about their work. Uh, regarding Mr. Sidibe's leadership of, of UNAIDS, the position is, a, as Stefan has expressed it, and continues to be the case. So could I ask then, does the Secretary General also fully support Martina Brostrom, who has accused Mr. Sidibe of a cover-up? We uh, want to help all the sides of this case get to the bottom of this, which is why the decision was taken to reopen this. Uh, it was felt that the previous investigation... Uh, needed uh, ultimately to, to have a, a proper follow-up, and that's what we're doing. But you do agree that there are claims against Mr. Sidibe, so for the Secretary-General to come out and fully support him, given the allegations against him, seems odd to people sitting on this side of the room. I mean, do you know something that we don't? The, this is a, a support for, for Mr. Sidibe and, and his work at UNAIDS. I can't speculate uh, or, or prejudge what the Office of Internal Oversight Services will say as they look into the Luris case. Uh, they're free to do so, and then we will evaluate that accordingly once they've done that. Asked for comment, UN Women issued a statement saying they were heartened by the reopening of the case and expressed hope for an outcome that brings justice and accountability. It's unclear when the OIOS investigation would be completed, but UN AIDS issued a statement Thursday calling for unity in addressing sexual harassment and gender inequality. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Our headlines up next with Fan Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the U.S. Embassy in Israel is expected to officially open in Jerusalem after its controversial relocation from Tel Aviv that sparked widespread concern. The World Health Organization hopes to deploy an experimental Ebola vaccine as early as this week to deal with an outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And two British nationals and their Congolese driver held hostage in the Democratic Republic of Congo have been released. They were abducted along with their driver on Friday in the Virunga National Park. Those are the stories making headlines. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. South Africa's ruling African National Congress Alliance partners in the Northwest Province have called on the party's National Executive Committee to appoint a National Executive Committee task team to take over the election work from the current ANC Provincial Executive. 
The call by Alliance Partners, SACP, Kosatu and Suncor was made after a joint meeting on Saturday in Clarksdorp. Patrick Dintua reports. The special joint alliance meeting was convened following the latest political developments in the province. They include, among others, action by Premier Mahumapelo when he reneged on his pledge to resign as Premier last week. That followed taking leave of absence and subsequently appointing an acting Premier. All that was done during a special provincial executive committee meeting. After the meeting, Mahumapelo called on his supporters to rally behind former Jacob Zuma when he will be appearing in court next month in Deben. Kosatu Provincial Secretary Job Gliso says the statement by Mahumapelo is purely in defiance to their national leaders. As an alliance, we take offense of that statement because we are working as, an, as a collective and one person cannot utter those uh, words. And the other one, it's defiance of the MEC uh, decision where he mobilized the society for the case of uh, Jacob Zuma. Civic organization Sanko lambasted Mahumapelo on his announcement of moving across the province and mobilized members against leaders who he said are causing anarchy in the province. Paketia Gezo is Sanko's provincial secretary. You can't have an acting premier when the substantive premier it's not bad reading or it's not out of the country. It's crisscrossing the province in the 18 weeks that he said he will move around and mobilize people. In our view, it's a direct fight against the same organization called the ANC. Now the ANC must act sooner so that he should not use state resources to mobilize against the same ANC. SACP Provincial Secretary Madoda Sambata says they are calling for the national leadership to take over the election work in the province. We agreed that we will formally write a letter to the National Executive Committee of the NC, request that they help the province by appointing a National Executive Committee task team to take over elections from the current PC of the NC. You can't have a situation where mobilized mob to blackmail the ANC that no supra, no vote. It's not corrected by the provincial chair of the ANC, but it seems to be flowing with the mood of them. Meanwhile, the interministerial task team in the northwest, led by minister in the presidency Nkosazan Adlameni Zuma, will meet in Pretoria today to discuss its report on the state of governance in the province. There are also reports that the national government is to take over the administration of the province under Section 100 of the Constitution. I'm Patrick Dintua in Tlaxstop. Political analyst Ralph Matecha says South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, will have to go beyond political rhetoric when dealing with the question of inequality between black and white South Africans. This is in the wake of reports that some party members have picked an issue over comments made by party leader Musi Maimani on Freedom Day. Maimani told dozens of supporters in Soshanguve, north of Pretoria, that 
that South Africa remains deeply unequal with black citizens locked out of opportunities. However, some within the party are apparently concerned that such utterances might alienate white voters. Amos Pacho has more. Haribuaniti, there is such a thing that we must confront of white privilege and black poverty. These are some of the remarks which apparently got my money into hot water. Some party heavyweights are unhappy with his radical comments, fearing that they could alienate white voters and that the debate should be carefully handled. However, my money insists that the party's policies on equality are clear. There is a system during apartheid that favored one race over another. That system has not been dismantled in the last 24 years. The realities of racial inequality still stand in South Africa today. And what I am saying is that in the constitution of the DA, those values that says we must build a society that is fair is a constitutional obligation upon all members and we will fight to change that situation. I want to break down a system that still allows many black South Africans to remain locked out of the economy to in fact remain poor and there's no question on the table about the fact that the DA will continue to fight for those who are left out. That's why our mayors, our governments will continue to fight that that problem. The distortions that have taken place do not reflect the constitution of the organization. My man is adamant that all members of the DA are committed to the struggle for equality. I don't deem white South Africans as the problem. I deem them as a solution. They are part of the solution in South Africa that will help us break down that issue and break down those inequalities. And therefore, I believe that all across, DA members, black and white, are committed to that project to ensure that we address that racial inequality. And therefore, it's not a question of, it's a question of what is the economic plan to achieve that. It's a question of ensuring that how do we go into communities and share with them a vision of one South Africa for all. We are not going to back down. And as we sit here today, I am standing firmly saying, I want to dismantle the system that perpetuates inequality. And I want all South Africans to join us in that fight. But political analyst Ralph Mateja says DA leadership appears not to be on the same page regarding the inequality between black and white South Africans. He says the party will have to do more than just putting a black leader in order to consolidate support within a broader constituency. The anxiety comes out of uh, the degree of uncertainty that seems to be demonstrated by some DA members who seem to be quite jittery uh, when it comes to the idea that the DA has to open itself up to becoming a completely multiracial party which will most likely reflect the demographics within the country. Just having a black leader is only one step in that direction. What needs to happen and seems to be a difficulty within the DA is actually to embrace uh, a shift in the manner in which the party thinks of itself. I mean, its identity and what it actually stands for. When it comes to that one would say are quite core to the black constituents within the country. Issues of transformation, issues of race relation, that seems to be where the DA seems to falter because they are not able to embrace those debates. And embracing those debates does not necessarily mean that members of the DA need to agree. What it means is that they need to show that they are concerned about those issues. With next year's general elections just around the corner, some opposition parties such as the Economic Freedom Fighters are already feasting on the DA's internal weaknesses. Following the party's decision to remove Cape Town Mayor Patricia DeLille and her subsequent decision to challenge the move, EFF Secretary General Godrich Gadi told hundreds of supporters in Pretoria that a split is imminent within the DA. 
Very soon there will be an announcement of the splinter of the Black Caucus group of the DA. The national chairperson had to rush to Cape Town to meet with uh, Mem Patricia Delil to help her navigate through the racism and racist victimization of Mayor Delile in the Cape Metro under the DA government. However, Mateja says any formation of a splinter group will be the result of self-destruction mode within the DA. He says the party can still turn its fortunes around by listening to all outside voices and embracing all debates that affect the South African population at large. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. Tributes continue to pour in for veteran South African photographer Sam Nzima, who took the iconic image of Hector Peterson during the 1976 Soweto uprising. President Sil Ramaphosa has also conveyed his condolences to the Nzima family. Nzima died on Saturday night after he was admitted to hospital on Thursday. He collapsed and was taken to hospital in Mbombela, Mpumalanga province. Members of different political parties and local residents visited Nzima's family in Lilydale, Bushbuck Ridge. Mtobisi Mkalipi reports. Singing Sam Zima's favorite hymn, these members of the Emmanuel Church also visited the Nzima family following the passing of the legendary photographer credited with taking the famous 1976 photo of slain Hector Peterson. Nzima's homestead was hive of activities as government officials and ANC members paid homage to the family. Residents also sang praises of Nzima. He is credited for bringing development in the rural area. Others described him as someone who was always willing to help others. After they built this house here, which is now completed, there was a tire road coming. So we're hoping for more things to happen, like water in Mabarole, for instance. So we're hoping that we'll see more development. Today we are having one of the most beautiful church in our area. And it, it is through his uh, massive uh, contribution. We were struggling to, 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 to put a roof to our church and he he poked out a very big amount uh, i don't know whether maybe i'll be wronging the church but if i may disclose it's more than two hundred thousand just for the roof international relations and cooperation deputy minister rejana mhaule described nzima as an international icon she says they'll forever be grateful to his contribution to the struggle against the apartheid regime government is expected to honor nzima Deputy Minister Mhaule elaborates. The role that has been played by Ubabu Semzima is not just a local role. He played a role for the entire South Africa. The, the picture that he took of Hector Peterson on, in June uh, 1976 is a picture that is used internationally. That makes him to be an international icon. So his passing on cannot just be made a village matter. It's not. Because... The African National Congress is coming in. The government of Mbumalanga and of South Africa is coming in. We may be waiting for the Premier to pronounce as to what kind of respect are we going to give to Ubabunzima as he has just passed on. Funeral arrangements are yet to be confirmed. I'm Tobis Mkalipi, Lily Dale, Mbumalanga. Last month, more than 100 top bird scientists, conservationists and policymakers met in the United Arab Emirates to strengthen efforts to conserve migratory birds and their habitats. World Migratory Bird Day, which was marked over this past weekend, was to draw attention to the perils 
birds encounter on their journeys as well as the various threats they face such as loss of wintering or stop oversight. Borja Heredia, head of the avian unit at the UN Convention of Migratory Species, says the population of migratory birds worldwide is in danger of collapsing. They provide very important ecosystem services to humanity and uh, it's only not just you know for aesthetic um, or recreation reasons that we should protect it but because they are you know part of the ecosystems and uh, we uh, human beings are also uh, related to the ecosystem uh, health so you know by protecting birds we are also in a way protecting our own future. And are migratory birds and their roots, are they in trouble at the moment? That's absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of uh, pressures, you know. Uh, we, we see the, the economic uh, development uh, in, in many different parts of the world. The places where these um, uh, birds uh, stop to rest and refuel, these places are being altered, you know. There's uh, human pressure. And then we see also, in other instances, an unsustainable taking, unsustainable harvest, unsustainable hunting of these species, too much pressure on taking these uh, species from the wild. And probably the third factor I would mention is climate change. Climate change is, is, you know, affecting the ecosystems worldwide. And have birds been given enough consideration in the sustainable development goals, these targets for 2030? Do they have a place? Yeah, indeed. Indeed, they have a place. They have a place because birds are part of biodiversity and as such, you know, they are a very, very important uh, part of the ecosystem. I mean, is there a real danger that we might lose these migratory birds if we keep going the way well, we are? But, but it's a reality. You are absolutely right. I mean, we are witnessing uh, populations uh, collapsing. I mean, uh, I can tell you the example of the red knot, for example, is a very lovely shorebird uh, that that lives in, uh, you know, in the, in the American continent. There is one particular site which is called the Delaware Bay. Changes in this uh, ecosystem of Delaware Bay. That was Borja Heredia, head of the avian unit at the UN Convention on Migratory Species, speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. Our economics update up next with Tavisolohogo. Good morning. South African Workers' Unions representing bus striking bus drivers will meet this morning to discuss the way forward as the nationwide labor action enters its fifth week. The unions announced on Friday that they had agreed an employer's 9% wage increase offer for this year and 8% for next year. However, they refused to sign because employers only want to effect the salary increase from the day the agreement is signed. Workers want the salary increase to be backdated to April the 1st. Employers say that's not affordable. Irvin Jim is the General Secretary of NUMSA, one of the unions involved in the strike. 
This strike does not belong to us. This strike belongs to workers. We can only persuade workers. We can only engage them. But these employers, they must also know that as workers feel that they are losing, they are actually making these workers to be militant. And what we really celebrate this year, we celebrate Satau, Numsa, and all other unions, that we stood together. We didn't allow these employers to divide and rule. And our view is that it would be important that in ending the strike as unions, we must stand together. Workers must go back to work, united. 44 African countries recently signed a framework protocol for the African continental free trade area, inching the continent closer to becoming one of the world's largest free trade areas. In Kigali, Rwanda, where the framework protocol was signed in March, African leaders were in an upbeat mood. If or when all 55 African countries ratify the free trade area, it would amount to over 4 trillion US dollars in combined consumer and business spending at a market size of 1.2 billion people. Signing the framework protocol does not straight away establish a free trade area. Countries have yet to finalize negotiations on protocols on trade in goods and services, intellectual property rights and investment and competition. The African Union Chair, Musafaki Mohamed, says there would be a re-evaluation of the 0.2% levy charged on eligible imports to motivate member states to comply with the agreement. Mohamed made the remarks last week at the State House when he met President A. Gengob during his official visit to Namibia. The AU Chair said there were some countries who were struggling to implement the 0.2% levy charged on eligible imports due to the mechanisms and systems. United States President Donald Trump has ordered the country's Commerce Department to help save the Chinese technology company ZTE. The company is in danger of going out of business because of a U.S. export ban. The BBC's Katie Silver reports. So this all goes back to mid-April when Washington accused ZTE of illegally trading with Iran and North Korea. As a result of this, they imposed an export ban where no American companies could trade with ZTE. And this has brought them to the point of basically financial ruin. They've stopped trading in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and they've had to cease operations. Washington and Beijing are currently in discussions trying to alleviate a potential trade war. The U.S. dollar trades at 966 Botswana Pula. It's at 986 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar trades at 360 Brazilian Real, at 6187 Russian Ruble, and at 6723 Indian Rupee. It's at 633 Chinese Yuan and at 1223 to the South African Rand. 73 pence to the British Pound, 83 cents to the Euro. Gold $1,321, Platinum $920 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $77.44 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoku for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, we begin with uh, cricket news. Momentum Protea's interim head coach, Salik Nakadin, believes his charges can 
and will reach their goal of winning the Cricket South Africa CSA Women's One Day International the ODI Series 5-0 when they meet Bangladesh in the last encounter today. The coach is confident that the team will rep- replicate its clinical performances so far and return unbeaten the series when they play at Mangawung Oval in South Africa's Free State Province. Nakadin says they are in a good space with good momentum going into the series against England next month. Although the Hoots have comprehensively beaten the Tories by margins of 106 runs in match one, nine wickets in the second, and third fixtures and 154 runs in the fourth, Nakadin believes there is still room for improvement and hopes to see the players meet the challenge head-on. And South Africa's Luvo Manyonga won the men's long jump contest from China's Yu Singh at the Shanghai Diamond League Series in China. Our correspondent Geshom Nyati reports. The South African World and Commonwealth Games champion pulled it on his last final attempt with a huge 8.56 meters for his victory. The distance is a world lead for the current season. Luvo Manyonga and China's Yu Hao Shi were both tied on 8.43 meters before his big jump in bad weather conditions in the rain. The 19-year-old Chinese tried to respond but injured his ankle and unfortunately he was stretched out of the competition area. Jeff Anderson, the Olympic champion from the USA, was a non-factor at all, finishing in fourth position. In other events, Botswana's Isaac Makwala was beaten into second place by Stephen Gardner of the Bahamas in the 400 meters. South African's Sunet Vidion finished sixth in the women's javelin. Reynard van Riesbeck, eighth position in the 800 meters. Keshom Nyati, Channel of Gasports, London. And the Nigeria National Olympic Committee, the NOC Medical Committee, Akimuni Amau, says they have avoided doping issues during international competitions through the efforts of the NOC in adequately educating, orientating, and guiding its athletes. Amau made the assertion while speaking on the secrets behind keeping doping at its barest minimum in an interview with the news agency in Nigeria on Sunday in Lagos. Amau spoke against the backdrop of the activities of the commission at the recent three-day NOC Olympic Solidarity Sports Medicine Seminar in Lagos. The International Olympic Committee backed seminar titled Protection of the Health of Clean Athletes was held at the command guest house Apapa Lagos. On doping among Nigerian athletes, Amau said that though the country's representatives were not immune to doping, the NOC had made concerted efforts to properly sensitize its athletes. And in rugby news, South African rugby side's Thomas coach Robbie Flex says it is disappointing to watch his side lose their first match at Newlands this year when they sank to a 15-9 defeat at the hands of the Chiefs on Saturday. And finally, golf news. Former U.S. Open champion Webb Simpson finished a four-stroke wire-to-wire triumph at the Players' Championship on Sunday to end a four-year victory drought. A double bogey at the final hole was just a blip for the 32-year-old Simpson, who signed for a final round 73 and an 18-under par total of 270 at a TPC Grass. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa Burundi village attack leaves 26 people dead and ahead of referendum and children face starvation in the DRC's Kasai region. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magaza and Khomutsomo Pulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or at channelafrica1. You can also send a WhatsApp message on 277-6300-3327. I'm taking us to the top of the hour for the news. On the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Jonas Gwangwa with a track titled Morwa.